think about spiritual warfare, um, but you may be disappointed to know that I'm not actually going to be speaking specifically about deliverance and seeing demons expelled. Although I have, we have experienced quite a lot of that in Portugal, which is what Chris was probably referring to. Uh, and because of that, because of growing up in that kind of environment, uh, I do remember my first kind of experience of that kind of encounter. I was probably about 10, 11 years old, and we were in a small, small church building. We were having a prayer meeting. There was maybe about 15, 20 of us. And at one point, I can't even remember why, we just held hands to pray. And there was a lady there that she physically couldn't do it. She could not move. And I remember looking at her, looking at her face, and she, she was putting all her effort into this, trying to hold hands, and she just couldn't do it. And obviously then a demon manifests, the elders had to deal with it, and actually there was kind of a prophetic revelation that this woman was um, in an adulterous relationship, that very sadly she wasn't willing to give up and be delivered. So that's how it ended. So <clears throat> although I'm not going to be talking specifically about that, you'd have to invite my mum and dad to do that next time. They've got a lot more experience and more exciting stories to tell. But what it gave me was this just awareness, like Chris was saying, of this spiritual reality of the world we live in, the forces of evil that operate. And I don't think... The devil is getting any less, uh, uh, <clears throat> has got any less influence nowadays, maybe in somewhere like the UK where you don't see that kind of manifestation so, uh, so often, especially as we think that we're approaching the last days. The devil is throwing everything he has at society and at the church, and we need to be aware of that. Paul, when he talks about Spiritual realities, Ephesians 6, he says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places." Paul uses war language, and we're a bit more aware about war because it's on our doorstep recently. So he talks about putting on an armor, needing strength, needing courage. He acknowledges the reality of these spiritual powers, uh, the reality of the devil as our enemy. And this devil, he doesn't play fair. He has his evil schemes, and he's out to kill and destroy. So one of the first principles in war is exactly that. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. Know who you're fighting against. A lot of people put a lot of money and effort into trying to understand Vladimir Putin. You know, know your enemy. What's he going to do next? C.S. Lewis, you probably know this quote, uh, as, uh, wrote... The following is said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves, of course, are equally, equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So which one would you say is our biggest, um, are we more likely to fall into in terms of error, this error? Which side would you fall uh, into? Giving too much attention to it or not enough? To know your enemy, you have to study him. Not get obsessed by him, but understand the way he operates, the tactics he uses, the war that he is uh, delivering on our souls. We're going to look later at the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Paul, he was acutely aware of Satan and the devil and his schemes. He says in Second uh, Corinthians 2.11, he says, He's having to write this letter to correct what was happening in that church so that they would not be outwitted by Satan. For Paul is saying, and the church can't be ignorant of his designs. Paul understood his enemy, how he operates. And in Ephesians 2, again, a very well-known passage, he describes the reality of everyone around us who doesn't know Christ, that this reality of the spiritual world that actually is the real uh, dimension where the strings are pulled, yeah? In Ephesians, there's this description then, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is where we get that uh, awareness, that description of the three enemies that, uh, of our soul, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And of course, Jesus knew the enemy better than anyone else. And he actually gives us the lengthiest kind of description of what the devil is like in John 8, um, 43 to 47. It's funny that he's talking to Pharisees, but specifically Pharisees who had believed in him. Okay? And so he's bringing this kind of very straight talk to them. And he, he asked them, why do you not understand what I say? I'll tell you why. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. It was an identity issue for Jesus. Your father was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. You do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. So the devil, if we want to know our enemy, is a liar, a manipulator, a deceiver, 
There is no truth in him by definition. He cannot be trusted. When he speaks, when he, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character. He, can't, he doesn't know any other, any other way of behaving. He is the father of lies. He invented them and built his power over this world using them. He is a murderer. And his only intention is to bring death and destruction. When we think of spiritual warfare, like I, like I mentioned at the beginning, the, the, the mental image is often of kind of a Lord of the Rings kind of battle in the heavenly places. But I think one of the main descriptions of spiritual uh, uh, <clears throat> warfare, there's, there's a few in the Bible, but think of just what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden. What happens there? The, the thing that actually changed the course of humanity. The devil, the craftiest of all animals, he came and he manipulated with a lie. A lie that was a perfect lie. It was kind of partly true. It just brought that seed of doubt. Did God actually say? And, and the answer is, well, yes, but no. I'm not really sure. And then he, he <clears throat> put in front of Eve this thing that was beautiful and that she desired, it kind of, it, it, it appealed to her flesh and she took it and uh, sin came into the world. That was his greatest victory and it came as a lie. I believe this, like I said, the first description of spiritual warfare, this murderer, this father of lies, planting seeds of doubt uh, in people's hearts about what God says and who he is and his truth that have somehow appealed to our human desires and are validated by the world around us and we kind of buy into it without even realizing. When you think of Jesus' ministry, what comes to mind about him and spiritual warfare? Obviously, he went around delivering people and confronting demons. And, uh, but again, the moment of, I think, biggest spiritual warfare, other than the cross, was when he was taken into the desert by the Spirit. And in that moment of uh, weakness, vulnerability, when he's alone, when he's hungry, the devil comes with lies, half-truths, manipulations of the truth. He comes to try and deceive Jesus. Obviously, Jesus defeats him, but I was struck by how Jesus, at the end of it, uh, when uh, the devil is finally uh, is commanded to leave Jesus' presence, Jesus is so weak after that extreme spiritual battle that angels came and were ministering to him. It was real spiritual battle. Now, our challenge in today's uh, day and age is that it's so hard because there's so much confusion about what is true. What is the truth? We live literally in the age of fake news of disinformation, half-truths that are spread intentionally to sway, for instance, an election or to manipulate a war 
to manipulate the stock markets, to push an ideology, to cover up COVID parties in Downing Street. <laughs> lies, lies, lies. And it's, it's just brought this distrust in the whole society. And we need to know our enemy, the one behind all of this, and what his intention is at the end of the day. So we need to grow as churches in the gift of spiritual discernment so that we are able to discern some of these lies and radically confront them with the truth. I think that was partly what was happening this afternoon with the seminar on racism. Yeah? Exposing lies of the enemy that for centuries have kind of been deep embedded in our lives, in our psyches, and have led us to behave in certain ways that we aren't even aware of. And it's the devil manipulating. So, what is truth? Pontius Pilate asked that question, didn't he? What is the truth? And the best definition I've seen of truth, I've got a few book recommendations at the end. None of these ideas are original from me. But truth is reality, or what corresponds to reality. I think you've got, you should have the definition up there. What is truth? The best definition I know of truth is reality or, or that which corresponds to reality. Truth is what we can rely on as being real. The chair that you guys are sitting on is reality. The air that I'm breathing is reality. Jesus, we know, is real, is reality. And the best definition of reality I know, and this is what I love about this quote, it is reality is what you run into when you're wrong. If you say, I believe I can fly, and you walk off the top of a 10-story building, reality is what you hit a few seconds later. And the truth is that society around us, these last few years especially, is hitting a reality check. All of these lies that have been given to us, that have been sold, that, have been, that the enemy has been slowly kind of manipulating, uh, are now kind of coming to a head and being exposed. And society is in chaos. They can't understand, they're kind of waking up, kind of in a slap in the face. What's happening? How did we end up uh, here? It's because we've been believing lies. You see, the problem is, it's not just that we can believe a lie, is that when we believe a lie, that then will affect the way we live. Is we live the lies we believe. So what is shaping our beliefs, our truths, the truths by which we live? What is feeding our thought process, uh, even our kids, our congregations? According to some statistics, it's Netflix or Disney Channel or whatever the entertainment system is that's popular here. You know, the, the amount of hours someone spends on a phone is just incredible on average. And that's what, every time you're doing that, you're being fed a worldview, a way of processing the world around you. You are being fed lies that will inform the way you live and the way you make decisions. 
About three years ago, most of you will know Vinu, Paul. He was in Portugal for a leaders' conference, and while he was there, he actually stayed in my house and uh, had a dream. He dreamt about me and my family, and he, in that dream, he saw me in my house, and I was holding something. And then, when he kind of got closer, he realized that I was holding a cage, and inside that cage was a snake. And he was a bit alarmed by that. And I, when he kind of stepped back, I answered him, oh, don't worry, it's only a pet snake. See, the kids are fine with it. They're all happy, they're used to it. And then he woke up. And so he, the next morning, he shared this dream with me and the family and offered no explanation as to what it meant. <laughs> like, thanks, Vinu. Now what? All he said was normally when a snake is involved, it's bad news. <laughs> so I prayed, fasted, talked it through with my wife. And the only thing that really kind of kept coming back to me, do you know what it was? My phone. Not that I was necessarily seeing anything particularly bad on it, but it was clearly a distraction, a way that the enemy was using to manipulate my life and those around me. Reality is, the kids were used to it, didn't battle an eyelid with, to it, and I had to repent and bring that to God. See, the enemy, like I said, he won't play fair, he will use whatever means he can. I came across this quote at the time as well, which said, consider the possibility that when a tweet provokes you, or an Instagram post makes you envious, or some online article sends you to another and yet another in an endless chain of what St. Augustine calls curiositas, you are dealing with powers greater, greater than yours. Your small self and puny will are overwhelmed by the cosmic rulers, the principalities and powers. Have you ever stopped to consider that? They oppress or possess you and they can neither be deflected nor by the mere exercise of will overcome. Any freedom from what torments us begins with a proper demonology. Only later, we may proceed to exorcism. This is by Alan Jacobs, who I have no idea who he is, but I think he's under something. Know your enemy and his schemes and tactics. You know, someone said, this generation is growing up in digital Babylon, and it's true. The Bible tells us, the truth tells us, you know, that we were created by God, then obviously we were deceived by Satan, we chose to turn our back on him, sin entered the world, that was our, that's the big problem. And so, as a solution, Jesus came. And the cross, so we, through repentance and faith, we can come to him and be 
changed and transformed. And then there's this promise of eternal life, of intimacy with God, of abundant life today, and a new heaven, a new earth to look forward to. That is the truth. But what does Netflix offer us? <laughs> Netflix will want us to believe that, you know, most people around us, to be honest, believe that what our real identity is, is kind of hidden deep down. It's our, our true self, our, our heart, which is kind of in, inherently, it's good, pure, and innocent. And what's the problem? The problem are all the kind of social constructs, the external uh, restrictions, traditions, religion, often parents, social expectations around us. That's the problem. Even biology can be a problem because it can be in some way uh, uh, restricting your true self. What's the solution? Free yourself from all of those restrictions. Experiment, find your truth. Reject authority, even if it's your parents and those closest to you. Surround yourself by those who affirm you in your views. And the promised future is happiness and pleasure. That's what people are kind of uh, living for, desperately seeking. If you want a good example of this, uh, um, this, this kind of line of thought, these kind of lies, I don't know if anyone's seen the, the Disney film Turning Red. Anyone's got kids, you've probably seen it. But I think it's just a perfect example of this kind of uh, lies that our kids are being exposed to. It's a teenage girl, turns 13, and suddenly she realized that inside of her there's a red panda that keeps coming out at, at awkward moments, when, especially when her emotions, because of a boy that she's seen or because something's happened at school, or some, sometimes they're bad emotions, but what happens is this panda that she didn't know was there suddenly starts coming out. And then she finds out that uh, <clears throat> her mum and her family, they've all had these pandas, but they've learned to restrict them through tradition. So she's then... Uh, encouraged by her mum, who's the meanie, she's the baddie, she's the problem, to suppress this panda. And through struggles and through the help of her friends that affirm her and love her the way she is, with panda, without panda, they just love all the bits of the panda that are within her. She finally breaks free from that and becomes her true self and lives as a confident, happy young lady, leaving her parents behind and her family traditions. Now, it's maybe easy to see this in popular culture, but what about the church? You know, they, someone said the biggest, the biggest threat to Christianity is completely different to what it was, say, in Paul's time, where he was confronting legalism. Because today's young people, they've got no kind of, uh, you won't encounter many young people trying to gain God's favor through rules and regulations. 
young people, most people, aren't worried about pleasing God. Part of that is because the God that they believe in is too good and loving to ever punish them. He would only accept them. If he exists, he'd accept them as they are. <laughs> but the greatest threat for Christianity is a form of Christianity that is presented as a self-help technique. It's quite similar in some ways to uh, Oriental religions, Buddhism. It's a Christianity where, yes, we were created, but the world, God, you know, we are the apple of God's eyes. Oh, I say it, yeah. The world evolves around us, me in the center. And we end up going to church or being presented a church, a gospel that really addresses the problems of our hurt and trauma. Life is hard, life is difficult. We find in Christianity a place where I can find help for this struggle. And the solution is we then enter this journey of discovery. We learn all of these different techniques to help us cope with our traumas. We, it's a Christianity that is very focused on forgiveness, forgiving others, all that they've done for us, done to us, sorry, but less focused on us asking for forgiveness for what we've done and learning through repentance and obedience how to live uh, under Christ. We're encouraged to find a church that meets my needs. We're more likely to reject authority when we don't agree with what the pastor is teaching. It's just easier to find somewhere else. It's my truth because it helps me. And it often, basically, doesn't lead to mission, precisely because of that. It's my truth, it helps me, but I you know, don't necessarily see how it can help someone else. Not so worried about that. And what does it promise? It promises a life without struggles that is comfortable and happy. And then COVID hits, bam. Reality check. COVID has rocked the church. In the last few years, you know, high profile leaders falling from grace, church attendance going down dramatically, Christians, I know personal, personal friends, deconstructing their faith. Increase in divorce, you know, you can't really see much difference between what's happening in society, what's happening in the church. An increase in pastoral issues, pastoral, you know, massive anxiety problems within the church. As Christians, we can't, we're not, we, we, we've been set free from the devil. The devil has got no hold over us. He can't force us to do anything, but he can manipulate us into choosing to go back to a yoke of slavery. That's what Galatians talks about. And I really believe this is a moment of opportunity for the church. It's a turning point, I think. It's this reality check 
if there's something we have learned from church history is that the church needs to be continuous in continuous reformation because precisely because but it, it is continuously engaged in spiritual warfare this isn't a new thing this has happened ever since the church has come into existence and we only have to look for instance at revelation to see this none of those churches in revelation had been in existence more than 50 years and yet five of the seven needed correction because they had bought into the devil's lies in some way or another and that had affected the way they were now living so Jesus, through John, sends these letters to the churches. Eugene Peterson comments about this. He says, typically, what is evident is that uh, <clears throat> all of these churches contained the forms of religion after losing the spirit. Wow. They are corrected, these churches, for abandoning their zestful love of Christ church in Ephesus, for being indifferent to heretical teaching, Pergamon for being tolerant of immorality, I don't know how you say that, for being apathetic, sadist, for letting luxurious riches substitute for life in the spirit, Laodicea. They contained the forms of religion after losing the spirit. It didn't take long. Talk about a reality check. Imagine being in one of those churches when these letters are being read out. It must have been like a slap in the face. It's like, oh no. At least it should have provoked that reaction. None of them set out with this intention of straying from the truth. But these letters were a wake-up call. So what has God been trying to tell the church over these last few years? What has God been telling commission? What has he been saying to our family of churches? Uh, I think Tim made a reference to this this morning um, about the generational thing, how very quickly from one generation to the next we can lose what we have learned. Charles Williams says, another quote here, there is not another institution which suffers from time so much as religion. At the moment when it is remotely possible that a whole generation might have learned something, both the theory and practice, the learners and the learning are removed by death and the church is confronted with the necessity of beginning all over again. <laughs> it's continuous. This spiritual warfare is continuous and I believe it is intensifying in these last days. So if you think that because there's no demonic kind of manifestations on your Sunday morning gatherings, that the devil is somehow not at work, then you're being deceived. All of, not all was bad obviously. The Lord did bring words of affirmation to most of those churches, but it was God calling them to action. He was saying, you have let your guard down in this spiritual battle. Again, Tim was referencing that, you know, that call to not let our guard down. All of these letters finish with 
the following exhortation. It's common to all the churches. Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I do believe this is a moment of immense opportunity for the church, but at the same time, there is a danger in this moment. And the danger is, we have not learnt our lessons. We have not heard in a way that it has kind of changed us, transformed us as a church, as a movement. Are we listening? Are we letting those words go into our ears, down to our hearts, lead us to action, repentance and faith? Repentance. In what ways has your church changed since the pandemic? What change of tactics have you made in this war against Satan? What are the lies that you've identified and are speaking truth into? In what ways has our church culture confronted or perpetuated the devil's lies? Let's try and kind of bring this to a conclusion by, like I said, looking at Paul and the letter to 2 Corinthians. Super, super interesting. In this case, uh, Paul, this church had been founded by Paul. It had been in existence maybe four or five years, I think, <laughs> when he's sending this letter. Okay, he's already needing to correct them. It didn't take long. Second Corinthians 10, verse 5 uh, to 11. Remember, Paul is very aware of the devil's schemes. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So what is spiritual warfare for Paul? What does he identify as spiritual strongholds? For him it's arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God. It's lies that have been believed by the church, which in turn affect our understanding of, of God and inform our life choices and the way that we then conduct our life as the body of Christ. Second Corinthians, the next chapter, chapter 11, verse three and four, he says, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Tim did a, an amazing job on this this morning. 
but the devil wants us to believe in a different Jesus. He wants us to receive a different spirit and he wants us to accept a different gospel. So that's the question for you as leaders or leadership teams, I think, in this season. What Jesus have we been displaying? What spirit have we been offering? What gospel have we been preaching? And these are tough questions because it does force us to look and to seek God and to pray and fast and take it seriously and fight like Paul did in tears. And one of the ways that God can reveal what actually is being preached and teached and displayed and offered is by looking at the way the members in our congregations are behaving. <laughs> because that will be an indicator of what they're believing. So, what can, how can we respond? I really believe that God has been bringing this moment for us as a church, not just commission, just it's much bigger than us, but this moment in history where all life has just been crazy and I hate to say it, it's going to get worse. <laughs> I think Guy had a prophetic word about the two waves. The first wave being COVID and the disruption that, but behind it, a much bigger wave coming. We can see the wave forming. How are we as churches going to respond? Have we learned the lessons? I'm just going to offer a few things that we've been doing in Portugal that I would encourage you to think about as well. But I think firstly, and again, this is going to go, I'm going to be repeating what's already been shared today. But word and spirit. Study, teach, and live the truth. Eat this word. Make it your bread. Share it with others. Live it out daily. Keep it simple and just simply obey. <laughs> it's not actually rocket science. But we've drifted so much from a discipleship that focuses on obedience to the word of God. And our every day on our Monday to Saturday lives. We have fantastic Sundays, but then on Monday when it comes to obeying it, we've, we've maybe not been so good at. One of the things, one of the first things Jesus did when he came out of the desert confronted by the devil, uh, he was to teach the Sermon on the Mount. That was one of the things we did through COVID. Now, according to Jesus, who is the truth, who defines the truth, defines reality, he is the one we can trust because in him there is no darkness, there is no lie. He is the truth that will lead us to true happiness. 
This is what people are longing for, but they are believing that the route to get there is this lie that they've been sold. Jesus tells us, no, if you want to be truly blessed and happy, fulfilled, then you need to be poor in spirit. You need to be those who mourn. You need to be the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are pure in heart, those who are the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see the contrast between that and Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) Blessed are you when others revile you, revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who, are, who were before you. Remember what I was talking about, the, this self-help Christianity? The reality is we avoid suffering at all cost because we believe that the future that God has promised us is this future without suffering. Jesus says, Rejoice, you are blessed if you are persecuted. You are blessed if you go through suffering in my name, for my sake. This is true freedom. This is true happiness. This is what Jesus is calling the church back to. Is study, teach, live the truth, pursue the spirit. My dad wrote an excellent booklet over through COVID as well, last couple of years. Uh, he can sign a copy for you now. I'm joking, we haven't got copies. <laughs> but uh, you can, we can send you a PDF of it if you're interested. It's called Baptism in the Spirit and the Christian Life. A credible, the subtitle is A Credible Demonstration of What Being One in Christ is Actually Like. It's really good. We need to rediscover this genuine expression of the charismatic, the spirit that empowers us and propels us for mission. Again, when the early church prayed in Acts 4, after receiving those first threats of persecution, they did exactly what we read in the Sermon on the Mount. They praised God for the privilege. They were happy. And it's interesting that when they prayed, they, they didn't pray for the persecution to go away. They prayed for boldness to keep preaching the gospel. It wasn't this individual, this, this, their experience of the baptism in the spirit wasn't this kind of individualistic, kind of uh, therapeutic, healing kind of experience to fill me up to be able to face the problems of my life. It's interesting that even the description is that the the building shook. It wasn't the individuals that shook. And what happened was they, after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God 
boldly. It led them to mission, speaking the truth, confronting the lies, boldly. And then another thing that we've been pressing into is this idea, we've been really challenged by this idea of basically the priesthood of all believers, equipping every believer. This was something that we were, a journey that got taken us on even pre-COVID, to be honest. One of the reasons was quite pragmatic. We're in Portugal, the churches are small, so we have to, uh, to ever, if we're ever going to reach the nation, we have to equip everyone in our churches to be a disciple that will make other disciples. Give them simple tools so that they can read and understand the word, but then be able to teach it to someone else. To be able to disciple someone else. So we were already kind of on this journey. And to be honest, when COVID hit and the church building is removed like in every way else. Our disciples were prepared. We didn't actually experience what a lot of churches experienced. We didn't lose anyone through COVID. We're not perfect, but I do believe that God had been laying some foundations that had been bringing some spiritual maturity to these disciples that they were able to then, even when the church building was removed, carry on. Like we see in the New Testament. Persecution comes, they're scattered, what happens? Every disciple called to make disciples. It's a slow process. It's a marathon, not a sprint. It's simple yet profound. It's transferable. It's family oriented, it starts in the home with the parents and their their kids, it's one on one and there's no shortcuts, it takes time, even Jesus took three years. (laughs) (laughs) But it's worth investing in if you're gonna aim to bring people into maturity and the final thing that I think we found a profound appreciation for is the Ephesians 4 gifts in particular the gift of the apostle the need if the need for the apostolic gift only makes sense if we appreciate that we are involved in a spiritual battle and that our church may have developed spiritual strongholds in the form of lies from the enemy that need to be identified and destroyed to restore the church to health and to mission. And that is part of the apostolic gift to the church. You know, one of the things, like I said, that has eroded in recent years is this trust in authority. I don't know if you've experienced that. You know, authority of any kind. But again, you see it in the church as well. If, authority, if, you, if, they don't, if someone in authority doesn't agree with your personal view, okay, I'll find a different authority. I'll find a different church. And it's interesting that Paul is addressing precisely this issue in Corinth. 
In context, Paul was writing that letter to the church in Corinth because as a response, by these lies that had been spread by spiritual leaders, he calls super apostles, and he identifies these lies, these problems, and what he says, he, he describes them, them as being this constant comparing and judging a leader's ministry by outward, outward appearance. That's chapter 10, I think. I haven't got the reference here. But these super apostles that basically come along, they spread these seeds of doubt in the Corinthians' hearts about Paul and the legitimacy of his authority over them. They had redefined what it meant to be successful in ministry with their charismatic and eloquent speech and their wealth. And they had put these doubts and questioned Paul's credentials. That's what he's having to defend. Because in their eyes, he was unimpressive. So Paul's, you know, and I just think in today's day and age, of social media and Instagram posts. I think this has become an even bigger problem, don't you? What is seen and projected as success doesn't necessarily correspond to reality. Jesus defines reality. I wonder how many of us, even in our churches, would recognize Paul in that state as an apostolic authority over our churches and lives. and submit to it. Paul's defense was, he said, in good conscience, he says that he has behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 1.12, he says that. Simplicity and godly sincerity. The point is this, the way Paul lived his life, all the hardship he endured, the way he handled it, in contrast to what the super apostles were suggesting was actually proof for Paul that he was following Jesus' way. He became poor like Jesus had become poor so that the Corinthian church could become rich like Jesus. And the choices we make in ministry, the way we choose to live our life, Paul is saying that is another one of our divine weapons, a powerful one in the spiritual warfare. The leaders we elevate, the way we define success is a divine weapon of our warfare. Because those things reveal whether we are living according to the truth or whether we are brought into the devil's lies and become distracted. I want to publicly thank God for Guy and Heather. Not just because of their spiritual, <coughs> sorry, their, their, their gift, their wisdom, their spiritual discernment, their prophetic vision, their love of God, their love for the church. Like I said, I had the privilege of living with them two years. And that is my testimony. 
godly simplicity and sincerity. <clears throat> Grace, service, elevating others. We are privileged to be led by Guy and, Mil- Guy and Heather Miller. He may not have the biggest following on Instagram. I don't even know if he's got Instagram. (laughs) But that is irrelevant. He may not have written a best-selling book, but that is irrelevant. He may not even be leading the biggest church within commission. That is irrelevant. The way they have conducted themselves, the way they lived their lives, even especially through hard times, makes me want to submit to their apostolic authority over my life and ministry. Give him permission, give them permission and the apostolic team to speak into any potential spiritual strongholds in our lives, in our churches, so that they can be Uh, presented healthy to Jesus. So let me finish with this. There is a seriousness, I think, about the moment we are living. Remember that we are in a war. We need to take it seriously. Jesus was serious when he warned the churches in Revelation that he would remove their lampstand. He warned another church that he would come soon and war against those in false teaching. He warned another church that he would bring great tribulation on the sexual immoral. He warned another one of the churches that he would come like a thief. And another one, he said, that he would spit them out of his mouth. Paul was often in tears over the churches. Jesus had to, like I said, he had to be tended by angels. He was so weak coming out of that desert encounter with the devil. The only other time I think he's tended by angels is in the Mount of Transfiguration. No, sorry. It's it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he's crucified. Spiritual battle. We need to take this moment seriously because God has given us an opportunity to change the culture, to see renewal in our churches. And this is an investment of a lifetime. It is not a quick fix because the war is never ending until Jesus returns. So we should expect pushbacks. We should expect lies. We should expect disruption, but take heart because he has conquered the world. I'm incredibly hopeful. It has been a tough few years and it's not over yet. God is doing something new in his church and even this conference has been just so encouraging the way that God has been speaking, the seminars, the themes, the way it started with this challenge to, to hold fast to God, the word and the spirit 
stay faithful to the truth. We need to take it seriously. But at the same time, it's, there's something that I feel, there's something of kind of a pioneer moment as well. It's stepping into the unknown, having to learn to trust God completely, going back to basics. It's like, uh, I was thinking it's almost like going on an outdoor adventure where you need to relearn uh, how much, you know, uh, how we can live with so much less and be happy and be connected with God at a much deeper level. So Revelation 3.19 to close says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers in the war, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and I also, uh, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Father, I just want to again acknowledge just the amazing sense of security and peace when everything else around us may be crumbling that we have because we know we are in the truth. It is absolutely wonderful, it is amazing to know that you are the one who defines reality, to know that our time here on earth is just momentary. Our bodies are like tents. They're just momentary here on earth, but you have prepared for us these rooms where we will live with you for eternity. Thank you that whatever the devil may throw at us, you have already conquered and defeated. Give us that gift of discernment. I pray, raise up prophetic voices. Raise up apostolic leaders more and more in our movement that will bring this clarity of vision that will be able to confront and expose all the lies that the devil is trying to in some, some way manipulate and distract us and lead us astray from the life that you have intended for us, this abundant life, this life of true happiness and blessing and fruitfulness. Father, I pray for a fresh anointing of your spirit over our churches, Lord, over the church, much wider than commission or move in power, move in power and that your spirit would really kind of just mobilize us to mission. Would rock the building and send us out with that confidence to preach boldly your truth.
the only truth, to preach reality, to bring people to that reality. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen.